1: This week, I spoke to Matthew Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor during the Trump administration and one of the first people inside the White House to sound the alarm about the coronavirus early last year. Here's our full conversation. Matt, thanks so much for making time for us. I I wonder what you think of the Biden administration's handling of the pandemic so far.
2: Yeah, well, you know, the, the Biden administration was able to inherit uh, a very strong uh, vaccine program in the form of uh, Operation Warp Speed. Uh, I'm, I'm wishing them the best. We're all depending on, uh, on the Biden administration's success at containing this thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, I, I'm here today in part to, to do something that, that uh, Marines are used to doing. The military has a very good tradition of doing what we call a hot wash. And all that is, is that at the end of every patrol, at the end of every mission, uh, we circle up and talk about all the mistakes that we made uh, in in order to try to correct them and do better uh, the next time. So it's really in that spirit that I wanted to highlight some of the, the mistakes that were made by the public health establishment. That is by the experts So that we can uh, learn from those mistakes and and improve the chance that uh, President Biden and his team are able to to put a lid on this thing.
1: And so, to that point, did you have a chance before you left the administration in January, did you have a chance to brief the incoming administration?
2: um, I I had the opportunity to brief uh, some of the members of the incoming National Security Council team. Uh, I, I left a little bit early. I know that Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, and all of our senior directors uh, did, a, did a warm handover, uh, lots of documents, lots of explanation. But remember, the National Security Council wasn't uh, the primary body responsible for the COVID uh, uh, crisis. That was the, that was the task force. So I wasn't really involved in the handover uh, as far as COVID was concerned.
1: So to that end, you think that you have information about the pandemic response that the Biden administration needs to know?
2: Oh, I do, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I would start with just reviewing, again, some of, some of the missteps uh, that were made. The first misjudgment by the public health establishment was uh, misjudging the nature of this virus. And so the playbook that we threw at it was the influenza playbook. Remember, we were, we'd been preparing for really for decades for a uh, flu pandemic, uh, but COVID behaves differently from flu in really critical ways that, that led us astray. The most important, of course, is that it spreads asymptomatically. Uh, and that misjudgment uh, led to the next few mistakes. One, of course, was that we were screening for the disease, Uh, as if it were flu, throwing tools at it like temperature screening, which were not going to work uh, when you had asymptomatic spread, as well as uh, diagnostics. With flu, you don't need a massive uh, uh, effort at diagnostics, because we already know so much about the flu. Uh, With COVID, you have to be testing, uh, um, uh, you really need to be doing millions of tests a day. And so what that would have required is a radical um, scaling up of the partnership between government and private uh, laboratories uh, to scale up that diagnostic ability. So that, that, that was a misstep. Uh, a second so misstep- why
1: wasn't that uh, happening in, in January? You, you were talking about temperature checks there uh, and not screening for asymptomatic people. Whose call was that? Yeah,
2: well, you, well, you have to remember that the, uh, the Chinese government was not sharing useful data with anyone in the world. The World Health Organization was parroting misinformation about this virus. They were, they were claiming that it is not uh, 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 featuring significant human-to-human spread. Uh, they continued for weeks, even months, uh, to claim that there was not a significant amount of asymptomatic spread. So that misled our uh, public health experts. And where we, where we should have been careful, more careful, was to listen to individual doctors on the ground in China who were actually giving us the clues. They were sharing better information with us than the Chinese government was. And, and that's, I, I was able to call doctors on the ground in China in late January, and they were already telling me, look, this thing spreads asymptomatically. Half of the cases or more are asymptomatic. That was a different story from what the Chinese government was telling, but we we should have uh, had more feelers out and and shouldn't have been relying on the Chinese government to spoon feed us what we would need to know.
1: And to be clear, you were calling people you knew because you had been a journalist in China for years. You, you then went on to become an intelligence officer in the Marine Corps. So you were calling people outside of the government, but you were inside the Trump administration. So yeah. why is it that you were seeing and hearing things from doctors that the official health organizations were not getting?
2: Yeah, I, I, it's it's an indictment of uh, the WHO certainly, but it, it also troubles me that the CDC was not talking to a broader range of people on the ground. We had we had about a dozen CDC officers in China. We have lots of CDC officers in the United States who deal with Chinese doctors, uh, but uh, but you're right. I, I had covered the the SARS epidemic back in 2003 when I was living in China, writing for the Wall Street Journal. So I dusted off some of my old contacts and uh, talked to Chinese doctors who had firsthand information about this pandemic, and they were very open. They said, yeah, this thing is not uh, gonna be like SARS 2003. It's gonna be like the 1918 flu pandemic uh, because it's spreading silently.
1: And Dr. Fauci recounted to uh, Bob Woodward in that book, Rage, uh, that he was hearing you uh, say these things in January, and thought you were overreacting. And then months later, then said, Matt was right. Was the administration being intentionally misled here? Or was it a problem uh, in terms of how our own public health officials consumed information?
2: Yeah, I I don't think anyone in in the United States was intentionally misleading anybody else. I think that we were uh, accustomed to dealing with uh, governments that act in good faith. And when you're talking about the Chinese Communist Party and, and a... Uh, you know, in an authoritarian regime that cares about nothing other than its own survival. Um, we were a little bit too credulous. We were we were waiting to be fed information, uh, when the nature of that regime uh, meant that we were not going to get that information. They they had a strong incentive to mislead uh, their own public and the rest of the world uh, about the nature of this virus, and that's what that's why we're paying the price that we've paid. Uh, you know, So so that misjudgment about the nature of the virus because we were waiting for information. By the way, we should have our intelligence community prioritizing the collection of uh, information about bio threats, including natural or or unnatural bio threats when it comes to these kinds of uh, um, totalitarian dictatorships that are not gonna come clean. We would have had better information from the government of um, uh, of certainly Rwanda, Kenya, uh, any number of, um, uh, of developing nations would have had better information faster for, for us and for the world than Beijing was uh, willing to share because they had a profound incentive to cover this thing up.
1: So the World Health Organization ha- has said that COVID-19 was circulating in Wuhan, China uh, in late 2019 but it took until January 2nd of 2020 before the CDC made that first call to the National Security Council where you worked. Why didn't U.S. health officials or U.S. intelligence know earlier about this threat?
2: Well, U.S. intelligence wasn't focused on these kinds of questions. They they, they were relying on the CDC. Uh, The CDC, uh, our CDC in China, had a working relationship with the Chinese CDC. Uh, we, we'd funded it. We had helped them with their HIV uh, pandemic. We'd, we'd uh, trained many of their officials, including their, the head of the Chinese CDC. The problem was the Chinese Communist Party did not turn to their CDC to deal with this crisis. They turned to their military, and our CDC did not have relations uh, established with the Chinese military. So the director of the Chinese CDC, based on public reporting, Didn't know either. I mean, the Chinese CDC director did not know that this thing was circulating until the last day of December, which is incredible when you think about that. So it looks like the Chinese CDC, to some extent, was cut out because the Chinese Communist Party turned to its military to try to cover this thing up, to try to contain it until it was too late and the consequences uh, uh, we're all feeling now.
1: So, I mean, that's an incredible allegation to say it was an intentional cover-up. Some have have looked at this and said, this is what a a clunky, bureaucratic, communist regime functions like. You have low-level officials who are incentivized not to tell the truth to their superiors or risk getting in trouble. Why do you think that this was intentional?
2: Well, we know that China's national propaganda outlet, China Central Television, ran stories uh, about the um, uh, the arrest of, for example, Dr. Li Wenliang, who's one of the early whistleblowers about this case. They, they, they accused him uh, in, in a national television broadcast of rumor mongering. And uh, you, you had so many different components of government, national, local, local hospital officials, others who were all being told shut your mouths don't send notes on your wechat account about it don't send social media don't tell anyone you've got to keep this thing secret
1: the chinese cdc was the prime source of information for our cdc were their health officials intentionally being blocked from sharing information with u.s health officials is that what you're saying that this was a, a military interference and project
2: well, I, I think that there were undoubtedly officials in China who wanted to share more information than they could. I spoke to some, some, some doctors, as I mentioned. Uh, I'm sure that there were uh, um, conscientious, well-meaning officials in the Chinese system who would have wanted to share a lot more data than they were allowed to. Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, The only reason that we got a sequence of the genetics of this virus in January was because a Chinese laboratory decided to share that information. Uh, They did it proactively. That lab got shut down uh, for quote unquote rectification uh, within 24 hours of sharing that. So I I think that uh, no doubt there were people who wanted to share uh, much more aggressively but were being muzzled uh, by the Chinese Communist Party.
1: You know to be honest with you, credibility was a big problem for the Trump administration, as you know, and so when President Trump made comments about China uh, and some of the things that we 're talking about now, a lot of people viewed it and said this is a deflection and a deflection away from his own failures to protect the American public
2: well, that 's why we to have that? to have a press well i 'd say that the press has to has to uh, listen to what. Um, uh, the, the president of the United States says, and then and then uh, weigh it against other information. Uh, you know, challenge the Chinese government as well. If there's any government you want to be skeptical of, it's the Chinese Communist Party. It's no coincidence that the Chinese government began uh, kicking out of the country. Uh, multiple foreign journalists right around the time that all of this was happening. They they claimed that it was because they saw uh, what they thought was a racist headline and so they started, they started emptying out the uh, foreign news bureaus uh, of the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and others. What they were really doing was going after foreign reporters who could speak Chinese language, who were working on this Wuhan case, or working on the genocide that's taking place in Xinjiang. In other words, sensitive stories that, that were a threat to the, the credibility of the Chinese Communist Party. That's why they were, they were pushing out all of all of the foreign correspondents so that they couldn't uh, actually uh, have an easy time pursuing these kinds of leads.
1: So the, the Biden administration and their national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, said he has deep concerns about the World Health Organization's recent report and Chinese interference in it. He's also calling for China to make data available from the earliest stages of the outbreak. This sounds exactly what, like what you were asking for.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm. am I'm, I'm really glad that uh, that, that uh, Jake Sullivan was at, made that statement. Uh, look, the World Health Organization um, uh, it made all sorts of um, of un. Untruthful or, or misinformed um, uh, claims about this virus—that uh, that it doesn't spread human to human, that it's not asymptomatic—they—they. They, uh They praise the Chinese government for shutting down domestic travel in China, while while simultaneously criticizing the United States uh, for shutting down international travel, which is a morally and logically indefensible uh, position. So the WHO has a lot to answer for. When it comes to this investigation into the origins, um, unfortunately we're seeing uh, a panel that's been sent to China that is deeply conflicted it's made up of people who have benefited from public funding to work in the very lab where this thing may have actually originated from the wuhan institute of virology Um, you have people who were hand selected by the chinese government they had a veto over who could come in uh, and some of those people were conflicted and so you have a situation where it's like you're turning to the rabbits to investigate what happened to the lettuce that they were guarding and so it's it's uh it's not a Uh, it's not a credible exercise uh, that we've seen undertaken uh, to get to the roots of where this thing originated.
1: To be clear, I mean, U.S. intelligence has said COVID, according to wide scientific consensus, was not man-made or genetically modified. You are not in any way alleging that it was, are you?
2: No, what what I'm stating is... uh, basically what you saw stated in a very carefully crafted fact sheet that the state department put out in january that statement says right at the very beginning we don't know where this thing originated it it may have come from a natural jump from animals into the human species Uh, it may have come and you know resulted from an accident in a laboratory and we've seen accidents take place in recent years including in some of china's uh, most well-regarded laboratories. They had an accidental outbreak in 2004 of the SARS virus, which they were studying. That, that was a fatal outbreak, it, it infected nine people. Uh, and so if you weigh the circumstantial evidence, because we don't have hard evidence, the Chinese government's making it very difficult to, to pin down and pursue hard evidence. But if you weigh the circumstantial evidence, the ledger on the side of uh, an explanation that says that this resulted from some kind of human error it far outweighs the the side of the scale that says this was uh, some natural outbreak. Now, one of the things that we put out in that statement were some questions, some leads that we were hoping WHO uh, uh, affiliated investigators would look at, that we hope journalists will, will look at, that we would hope that Beijing would come clean on, although we're not holding our breath on that. Some of those things include the fact that we have very strong reason to believe that uh, the chinese military was doing secret uh, classified animal experiments uh, in that same laboratory going all the way back to at least 2017. Uh, we have good reason to believe that there was an outbreak of flu-like illness among uh, researchers working in the wuhan institute of virology in the fall of 2019 uh, but right immediately before the first uh, uh, documented cases uh, came to light uh, we also know that they were working on Uh, viruses doing gain-of-function research, study, uh, technical uh, sorts of experiments with viruses, including uh, a virus that was discovered in the southwestern province of Yunnan uh, uh, that that is most similar to the virus that we all now know as uh, COVID. Um, so the, there are a lot of leads that we put out there that I, I don't see any ev- evidence that this uh, panel of, um, uh, of, of researchers affiliated with the WHO um, were able to get any information uh, on any of these questions. They haven't even addressed uh, answers to any of these questions.
1: So what you're referring to is um, some information that the State Department declassified right before uh, the end of the Trump administration that detailed some of the things you just laid out there. And it said that you have reason to believe a COVID-like disease was circulating in autumn of 2019 in China. Is there evidence to back up that assessment?
2: Uh, There is. And uh, that was a very carefully crafted statement, carefully crafted so as not to overstate the case uh, that, uh, that, that was making. The case it was making was for following up on these important leads. So this was a document that was scrubbed by every department, of, within every bureau within the State Department, was looked at very carefully by the National Security Council staff, intelligence officers, health and human services. This was not a haphazard uh, a set of allegations that were laid out in that statement.
1: So the Wuhan Institute of Virology is this lab that was near the market uh, that so much early reporting was focused on. And in this lab, it's been characterized really as um, you know a private research facility. But you are saying here that the Chinese military was running its own experiments inside that lab. You think, do you think that this was just an accident that really spiraled out of control?
2: Yeah, I think that I I don't uh, I'm not aware of any evidence, uh, even circumstantial evidence, to suggest that this was a deliberate um, um, seeding of of a pandemic by anybody. Uh, But the types of research that were underway, both by the civilian staff of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and also uh, military researchers that they were closely affiliated with, were studies into exactly the kinds of viruses that, you know, uh, ones that are 96% similar to the virus that's now making us all sick. Uh, They were doing gain-of-function research using uh, humanized uh, mice, for example. That's to say mice that have been genetically modified to express uh, human-like features, human lung tissue, for example, and then pushing viruses through humanized mice which can sometimes lead, sometimes intentionally, what you're trying to do is study the dynamics of a virus to see uh, what, what's dangerous about a virus. What, you know, what, what do we need to know to protect ourselves from a virus? And in doing that kind of research, there, it's highly possible that that led to some kind of an accident that seeded uh, the, the COVID pandemic that's now killed more than 2 million of our, our fellow human beings.
1: Let's unpack some of what you were saying about uh, the response here at home. Um, It's been widely reported that you went into the Oval Office alongside National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien and told President Trump at the end of January that this would be the greatest national security threat that he ever faced. Did he understand the gravity of what you were saying at that time?
2: I think he did. That was something that Robert O'Brien told the president. Um, uh, To the president's credit, it was I think it was only about 48 hours after that conversation that he took a step that I don't think really any other leader would have taken, which was he decided to shut down travel from China. Um, uh, He followed that up six weeks later with a travel ban on Europe. If European leaders had taken the same step that President Trump took to shut off that travel, we would have bought several more weeks to prepare for this pandemic. It wouldn't have prevented it from coming to the United States, but it would have bought us more time. And time uh, obviously was of the essence at that point.
1: Because what you're saying is Chinese nationals were still traveling into Europe. Europeans could still travel into the United States until mid-March. So there was a huge loophole left open into the United States. So around that same time, though, the American public is being told that this is not a direct threat to them. I mean, Robert O'Brien was on Face the Nation saying exactly that. This is low risk in the U.S. Is that what you thought at the time?
2: Uh, I, I, I thought that it was going to be uh, potentially quite quite devastating, but we didn't have hard evidence of that. So. Um, uh, Robert's quote uh, on Face the Nation, you you know, you could match that against quotes from uh, from uh, a great number of uh, public health experts in this country and abroad who were saying similar things, because we did not have hard evidence from the Chinese government. That this thing uh, was was uh, as dangerous as it was. The Chinese leadership was claiming that uh, it was under control. They were downplaying the risk of human-human transmission. They were highly critical of President Trump for uh, for imposing that travel ban. Uh, so uh, my view was um, uh, let, let's prepare for the worst.
1: So in preparing for the worst, inside the National Security Council, you started telling your staffers to wear masks. Yet the American public wasn't told definitively by the CDC to wear masks until April.
2: Why? Yeah, Yeah. well, this is what I was getting at at the beginning that, remember, we misjudged the nature of this thing to think that it was like flu. One of the mistakes that followed on from that was uh, the misjudgment by public health officials in this country to to not advocate for the widespread, generalized use of face coverings, cloth masks, surgical masks, and what have you. So there was a a very understandable reason why they did not wanna promote uh, significant, widespread use of masks at the outset, and that was they feared shortages. Um, Rightly, we were fearful that doctors and nurses around the country were not gonna have access to masks themselves. Because we had diversified, we'd failed to diversify our supply chains. We'd put all of our uh, mask-making supply chains into, guess where, China. Uh, And and China was not making it easy for us to get access uh, to to, uh, additional supplies. So uh, the CDC, that was an understandable thing to do. But it then made the mistake of conflating that with a, a, a set of advice that masks don't work. Effectively for the general public, that was a big mistake, uh, it, and uh, it wasn't until early April that uh, the CDC put out guidance saying, actually, um, you know, w- we do think that the American public should wear uh, face coverings. Uh, the White House was unwilling to uh, mandate mask usage until the CDC uh, gave that guidance. I mean, we were we were trying to. Uh, follow CDC guidance across the U.S. government. Uh, Robert O'Brien and I weren't really willing to wait. <laughs> and so we thought that um, uh, the risk of a outbreak in the White House could be potentially devastating uh, for the United States. It would, it, it would, that would create a national security risk. Uh, and so in early April, we started looking for uh, supplies of masks. I ended up calling uh, a foreign government. I called uh, uh, some senior officials in Taiwan Just to to ask for lessons learned, uh, Taiwan had done better than probably any other country in the world at at, uh, containing this this virus. They were producing 10 million masks a day, high quality surgical masks, for a country of just 24 million people. And so in the course of my conversation, I asked whether they had masks available. They weren't exporting them at the time. We didn't have access to Taiwan masks, uh, but they agreed to send uh, a shipment of half a million masks um, just a couple of days later. Uh, We put those masks into the national stockpile so they'd be available to uh, uh, frontline medical workers. I made sure that one box out of that 500,000, so a box of 3,600 masks, got delivered to the White House and was disseminated through uh, uh, the NSC and the the White House medical unit.
1: So you knew enough to call a foreign government to ask for masks, but the American public wasn't being told yet to wear them, and the president wasn't wearing them. I mean, for people hearing this now, it, it, it's it's crazy-making. I mean, how do you make sense of that?
2: Yeah, it's frustrating. the 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 mask misstep um, cost us uh, dearly. It was the one tool that was widely available. At least homemade, you know, cotton masks were widely available. It was the one effective, widely available. Uh, tool that we had in the arsenal uh, to, to uh, deal with this. But again, we were stuck in, uh, you know, public health uh, officials were stuck in this uh, sort of flu mentality. We don't, we don't use masks in the United States to deal with flu. Why would we be using them to deal uh, with, this new, uh, with this new pandemic? It, 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 was, it, was a, uh, it was a grave misstep. The other really grave misstep and this is the one that uh, uh, I, I think we haven't rectified yet and we've got to rectify. It has to do with the collection and analysis of critical data about how this virus is spreading in real time, both where it's appearing, but also how its genetics are evolving so that we can stay ahead of it, ensure that, that we, we don't get sucker punched by a new variant that could uh, compromise the effectiveness of our uh, of our vaccine. And this is an area where uh, the Centers for Disease Control has stumbled very, very badly. Um, I, I know that the new director, Dr. Walensky, is, is working hard on trying to uh, get, the, get uh, a far greater number of uh, samples of this virus um, um, genetically sequenced which is critical. We, everyone should give as much support to her in that endeavor as possible, but there are cultural and organ, organizational problems that still need to be rectified at the CDC uh, if, we're, if we're gonna have a chance at success, both in, in bottling up this pandemic and also preventing the next one.
1: Inside the White House, um, the commander-in-chief himself got COVID. Matt, I mean, as a national security risk, did you ever look and say who exposed him and figure out how that happened?
2: Well, the, the White House medical unit, I mean, it was a terrible day. Uh, I, was, I was overseas uh, when we got the news that the president had been infected. It was scary. Um, the White House medical unit uh, was in charge of doing contact tracing and the like. And I know that there's been some some public reporting about uh, at least speculating on on, on some of the uh, events that may have fed that um, uh, that transmission. I, I, I don't have any insight, uh, uh, even as much insight as the, the medical uh, uh, doctors do at the White House. But yeah, it was it was a tough um, it was a tough thing to learn.
1: But was it should there have been a real contact tracing effort within the White House to pin down? The source of the outbreak. I mean, wasn't that a national security lapse?
2: Well, I, I'm not. Su- I'm not sure that there wasn't uh, a, a thorough contact tracing done on that. But you've got to remember, at that moment, you, we had um, we had multiple cases. You had several people uh, in the White House staff uh, in fairly close uh, time proximity who who uh, developed uh, symptoms. Um, uh, it it um, it may have had to do in part with. Um, uh, the, the the quality of the tests that we were using. Uh, there was a range of different tests that the White House was using to screen staff. Some were more effective than others, uh, but uh, I, I'm not certain that there, there was a failure uh, to do that kind of contact tracing.
1: I've heard you on all the um Criticisms of the CDC, and you've highlighted some really specific areas for them to improve. I wonder from a national security standpoint, though, um, you know, one of the criticisms from the Biden team when they were on the campaign trail was the decision to uh, not pay attention to the Obama era playbook on how to handle pandemics. Another criticism was, you know, getting rid of a pandemic unit and wrapping it into the bioweapons unit on the National Security Council. Were there national security risks here that were created as a result of these decisions
2: yeah well the one the one about the structure of the NSC uh, doesn't hold up muster because we there when we inherited the NSC structure from the previous administration there were several public health uh, and, and biodefense related officials who were scattered across the organization many with with uh, very confusing cross, functional reporting, chains of command and so forth. That got folded into uh, uh, one shop that had actually a more senior official in charge of it. There was a deputy assistant to the president who was in charge of uh, uh, bio threats uh, and other kinds of uh, weapons of mass destruction threats. At the end of the day, a a bio threat like COVID, it it doesn't really matter whether it emerged naturally or by accident or as a deliberate threat. The, the, the steps that you take to actually deal with it are more or less the same. So it made sense for us to consolidate those officials. We had the same number of officials working on those issues under one roof. Uh, but um, the the playbook itself, again, because we, we put the flu paradigm onto this thing, uh, we really failed to understand uh, the, the ways that this thing um, uh, w- w- was, uh, Fundamentally different, and that's why we we worked so hard to bring someone else in who could work at an even higher level. Uh, uh, and that's that's where Debbie Burks came in. We 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 uh, knew that she had several attributes that that were exactly what was needed to help dig us out of uh, uh, dig us out of this problem. And so I, I pursued her very. Uh, doggedly and uh it was good for the country that she came on board it was tough on on debbie that she came she came in to be the pandemic coordinator Uh, but i do think that there is a role going forward in having an institutionalized uh, um, uh, pandemic coordinator uh, uh, who is organizationally tied to the centers for disease control The CDC is set up kind of like an academic institution. You've got these siloed centers, and within the siloed centers, you have siloed divisions and then siloed branches under those divisions. Uh, There is not a super body within the CDC that is able to reach in uh, and do pandemic prevention and and, uh, uh, response. Uh, those functions are sort of divided. There, there's a uh, Assistant Secretariat for Pandemic Response at the Health and Human Services Department. Um, and, and what would happen is CDC and ASPR, as it's known, would, would uh, sometimes think that the other was responsible for, for critical functions, and then things would fall by the wayside. My view is that they should establish a new super body for pandemic uh, preparedness and response within the CDC probably move it from Atlanta uh, into Washington, D.C., so that 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 person who's in charge of that can also be uh, um, attached to the White House.
1: So this is your prime reform to the CDC to prevent us from being sucker punched the next time would be to create this new agency or...
2: This part of the CDC. Well, that's that's one of them. The other one would be to create a Centers for Lessons Learned, uh, like like I like the military uh, has for each of its service branches. You have a quasi-independent body of investigators who can go in and talk to anybody and everybody, collect lessons learned in real time, and then report. It's important that the director of the CDC and the other senior leadership actually listen to those reports and implement the uh, the lessons learned, so that you've got a living organization that's learning. That is not, unfortunately, what the CDC is today. There's So the, the final thing really about the CDC is cultural. Uh, the, the CDC has developed over the years, even though it's got great talent in there uh, and, and, and well-meaning people and a lot of expertise, it's developed an academic kind of mindset. I'll give you an example. Right now, uh, we are not sequencing nearly enough samples of this virus to know whether we have a new variant or a South African variant or something else that could sucker punch us. Part of the reason for that is that last year, the CDC was unwilling to partner with private labs that could do this on an industrial scale. They wanted to do it in-house. When you, are, even though when they don't you have say the,
1: the CDC, just to, just to be clear, when you say the CDC, are you talking about Director Redfield?
2: I'm talking about the institution as a whole. i'm not I'm not pinning this on on Bob Redfield. The problems of the CDC predate uh, by many, many years um, uh, the, uh, Bob Redfield's tenure. Uh, Bob Redfield did the very best that he could with what he had. I'm talking about institutionally, in the in the belly of this institution, uh, CDC was unwilling to uh, uh, to partner with industrial labs to do tens of thousands of, of uh, sequences uh, uh, so, that, so that you could actually see where this thing was going. They wanted to do it internally and and I think the reason for that is they want the data themselves so that they can publish. There's a very powerful incentive within CDC culture to partner with academic institutions rather than private institutions and, and to uh, collect data Uh, submit for peer review articles that uh, burnish your credentials. That's a very slow process. That's not uh, the the kind of incentive you want uh, for dealing with a fast-moving pandemic. I'll give you another example. The domestic uh, HIV division of the CDC um, is using decades-old approaches to their analysis of the HIV pandemic in the United States Uh, They don't collect data that's usable from as many as 18 of the U.S. states. It takes them about three years to do the modeling to figure out how many new cases there are a year. So we find out three years later how many new infections there were three years ago. Mm -hmm. They're not using state-of-the-art labs uh, and and lab uh, uh, tests, uh, which we use, the CDC uses in Africa to an enormously uh, beneficial effect. Uh, So we've ended up in a situation where we have 38,000 new cases a year of HIV in this country when we should be pretty close to zero by now. We spend 30 billion dollars almost a year on domestic HIV and yet we spend a fraction of that, about one quarter of that in Africa and we have far better outcomes in Africa uh, for HIV uh, than we have here in the United States. And by the way, the the good outcomes in, in Africa are the good work of the of, of the CDC? It's it's the global HIV branch, which is a different silo from the domestic branch. It's just that we're not taking the fantastic work and the, and and learning the lessons of our success in Africa and applying them in our own country. So what you have here is a a rusty culture. It, it's it's accumulating barnacles. It's becoming hidebound academic and and not a fleet of foot uh, sort of uh, shock force for dealing with. Uh, uh, with, with these kinds of uh, outbreaks that we're, we're wrestling with now.
1: Your wife's a virologist. I can hear that you're passionate about trying to reform the CDC here. Um, but but fundamentally, you know how much of this is um, a, a question of if this should be handled by public health officials at all or whether pandemics should be handed over to intelligence officials and handled like a national security threat?
2: Yeah, you're right. My wife uh, actually worked for many years in the labs at the CDC. Uh, she helped develop a, 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 uh, a, 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 uh, an assay that's, that's uh, used in 60 countries around the world. She's very proud of her service at the CDC. She's very proud of the people who work at the CDC. Uh, and she knows what the CDC can do when it's at its best. It's not organized culturally and, and organizationally right now to be at its best. The the question about, you know, the intelligence community, the intelligence community does need to prioritize the collection of intelligence on these kinds of bio-threats rather than relying uh, strictly on on sister-to-sister relationships between our CDC and and public health officials in other countries. We put an enormous amount of resources into tracking nuclear threats, radiological threats around the world. We need to be doing something similar, especially on the collection front when it comes to bio-threats. Uh, but but I don't think that the intelligence community is going to be able to to do more than that critical role of, of collecting and analyzing the information. The actual response we've got to rely on a uh, you know our permanent bureaucracy uh, to to uh, to do better than it's doing right now.
1: You worked in the Trump administration going back to 2017. You stuck in there that whole time. I'm wondering why. You resigned January
2: 6th. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I was uh, in the Trump administration from the first day. Um, and uh, uh, I joke with my wife that it was the mother of all combat deployments. You know, it's, it's a, working at that level in any administration is very difficult uh, to, to stick in there for, for four years. I, I'm, I'm extremely proud of what we accomplished uh, in, in our foreign policy. Um, uh, things that were very good for the country. We turned around a decades-old China policy that uh, had been enabling the rise of a hostile totalitarian dictatorship. Um, uh, We uh, made peace between Israel and four Arab states, which was something that the the experts said could never happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, on the question of war and peace, um, President Trump was the first U.S. President in decades, not to get us embroiled in a new military conflict overseas. And as a veteran of two wars, myself, that's something I'm very grateful for. Um, I I had been planning on leaving. You know, at uh, home,
1: at home, when people hear no deployments overseas and no conflict overseas, they look at the level of division and anger at home and say, what are you talking about?
2: Well, you know what, what I was—I was, I was going to mention that that I, I had um, made a decision that I was going to leave uh, even before the election. Um, Robert O'Brien asked me to stay on uh, through the transition, uh, whether we were going to trans—transition to a, a second um, uh, Trump term or to a Biden administration. I agreed to do that, um, and, but the sixth of January was—I uh, I felt that um, given the events of that day, that was the, the moment where I felt that it was appropriate for me to go.
1: You're talking about the siege of the U.S. Capitol.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw the same things unfold that the American public saw. I, I mean, images of violence uh, um, uh, unfolding on, on uh, television, and uh, uh, that's when I called it quits. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think, uh, uh, coming up on this grim milestone, we're about to see about half a million Americans who have died from covid when you look back, you're th- you're clearly thinking a lot of what could have been done differently. Do you think that the Trump administration did the best
2: it could? Yeah, I I think that having worked closely with the people on the coronavirus task force, uh, which took flight at a moment of of deep division in the country. Remember, we had a, we had an impeachment, the first <laughs> impeachment a uh, um, uh, trial taking place uh, as the Coronavirus Task Force was meeting uh, at a time when the, when the country wasn't focused on on this pandemic people in the White House were people at Health and Human Services and at the CDC were I, I never encountered anyone uh, a, at a senior level who was not um, deeply seized by um, uh, the 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 major um, um, uh, weight of uh, what we were facing. Uh, I do think that people did their best. Uh, I, I'm, I'm doing this hot wash, as I call it, um, in, the, in the spirit of trying to help uh, the new CDC director, to help uh, our other public health officials, as well as the political leadership at the White House, Health and Human Services and beyond, understand that the narrative that it was uh, all uh, political failures at the top is not true. Uh, there will there, be plenty of analysis. There is already plenty of analysis and plenty of books that are forthcoming that are gonna examine uh, uh, political uh, uh, mistakes and that are gonna examine how uh, you know, COVID cost President Trump the 2020 election. There's been less focus because the press does, let's face it, the press covers personalities, the press covers politics. It doesn't cover governance that often. And so what I'm trying to to bring to light here is that we have a a deeper problem uh, with the permanent government in how we are organized culturally and, and organizationally to deal with this pandemic and with future ones. I want us to succeed at getting better. Um, our, our government does get better when, when it does this. The, I, I've seen the military um, improve uh, at, at, uh, at, at rapid speed uh, in war zones because lives depend on it. We need the same mentality that the United States Marine Corps has, you know, in, in Anbar Province in Iraq, uh, transplanted to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and to uh, the Centers for Disease Control so that they can task-organize and improve the culture in ways that are, are going to make all the people who work there even prouder to be doing this frontline work to keep us all safe.
1: Now, I appreciate the download on all of that, uh, all the lessons learned. Just to button up, to clarify, when you were saying you were watching on television what America saw on television with the siege of the Capitol and that it was too much for you. Do you blame President Trump for that?
2: Well, you know, I I, um, uh, will let my actions sort of speak for themselves. I mean, Washington, D.C. is the the one town in America where words speak louder than actions. In the rest of the country, actions speak louder than words, and and, uh, I'll let my actions that day speak for themselves.
1: Matt Pottinger. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you. Thanks a lot, Margaret.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast.
1: This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you.